The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. It's Wednesday, June the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are our political editor, Pat Leahy, and our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Both of you were in Brussels for this week's EU summit meeting. Naomi, tell us, what was at stake and how did it go? So this week, the big headline story is that the EU member states managed to agree to cut out two thirds of Russian oil imports, which will be increased by other countries, cutting out other kinds of oil imports by pipeline. Um, So that was sort of the major agreement. And apart from that, they were grappling with this really concerning issue of a potential global food crisis uh, because of the interruption to exports from Ukraine, but also from Russia. And so that was concerning. There were also some talks on defence. And it was also an opportunity for the EU to kind of, the 27 member states to check in on each other and maintain a common front regarding Ukraine, which they managed to do. And how difficult were those talks? There was there was talk in, in advance of this summit that the uh, united front against the Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine was perhaps starting to splinter or fragment a little bit. And of course, there was a lot of focus on Hungary and a lot of, a lot of these negotiations um, over the the nights at the end of the weekend centred on this exemption for Central European countries and particularly for Hungary. Agreement was difficult, let's say. I mean, diplomats worked late into Sunday. They met again on Monday uh, trying to come up with this compromise. Uh, so it was still up in the air until the leaders actually went into the room. And um, the Estonian prime minister said going in that she said she thought the atmosphere was not good when she first entered. So there was quite a lot of Uh, well, a certain amount of relief um, and happiness that they did manage to get a deal because it would have looked really bad if they didn't. What that required was, uh, like I say, splitting oil into two. This is the sixth package of sanctions and it was proposed 26 days ago and it had been held up since then largely because the opposition of Hungary, which is more or less totally dependent on Russian oil imports through a pipeline. So in order to get Viktor Orban on board, this package instead bans oil that comes in by sea and not pipeline oil, but the sea oil does make up the majority of oil imports. So it's not a perfect solution, but the leaders were basically saying, I mean, the main thing, the most important thing is that we came to an agreement. We still have unity on uh, on this and on Ukraine. And this is this is good. This is a very substantial financial hit to Moscow. And, um, you know, politics is the art of the possible, basically. I mean, it is an empirical fact that because of its geographical location, Hungary is very dependent for energy on Russia. But it's also a fact that the conflict between um, most of the European Union countries and Hungary over issues, internal issues, including you know rule of law questions, and also perhaps a sense that the political movement which Viktor Orban uh, represents in Hungary is more closely aligned with Russia than anybody else. I mean, do those things feed into the negotiations or is it just purely down to the economic requirements of Hungary in this issue? And how, does, how do these broader conflicts uh, between the EU and Hungary play into that? 
It definitely feeds into it. And I think there was some relief that Hungary did, in fact, agree to something in the end. Because if you wanted to think, you know, let's say Viktor Orban was being Putin's very best ally, he could just keep blocking it and never agree to anything. And that would be the that would be the best thing for Russia. But he didn't do that. He did agree in the end. But he did make the most of the few weeks of negotiations and conflict in domestic politics. So when he turned up at the European Council, for example, his official account on Facebook uh, posted a picture of him arriving and being mobbed by press saying the battle begins um, and saying that he was there to defend Hungary and Hungarian families. Um, and, you know, th th this is sort of he's casting himself as a warrior against this sort of impingement from the EU that's trying to challenge family values and things like that. So he's he's using this very much for his own um domestic politics, this conflict. Um, but he also, I mean, he managed to get a great deal for himself. Uh, Hungary will still have the cheap oil. Um, there's So far, we have no, been given no date uh, for a time limit on that. So, you know, we don't know until when that situation will continue. Um, so you could argue that Hungary is going to have a relative advantage over other EU countries. It will also apply to four other EU countries, which also get pipeline oil through this Druzhba pipeline. Although Poland and Germany have both said that they will nevertheless stop using it, even though they don't technically have to under this particular sanction. So the details are going to be worked out over the coming days. It was also notable that Orban, when he turned up, he laid into the European Commission. He unleashed this criticism of them saying this situation was all caused by the irresponsibility of the commission in proposing a package in the first place when there wasn't agreement yet on it. Um, and so, you know, he, he, he used this as part of an ongoing conflict, which he has because the commission is not giving Hungary, um, enormous amounts of funding that would be due in COVID-19 relief funds, stimulus funds. They've been holding that back, as you mentioned, because of concerns about democratic backsliding and the rule of law. Uh, because, you know, Viktor Orban's regime is not rated by NGOs as fully democratic anymore. He's clamped down on independent media, civil society. Uh, there's uh, The ECJ has found evidence of interference in the independence of the courts. Uh, so this is a long running issue. Um, and it was it was interesting, though, because I think the overriding priority was to come to an agreement and to not turn this into a big feud with Hungary. Because we also heard, usually you can count on the Dutch to be the most outspoken critics of Hungary. They don't mind taking that position. And this time their prime minister, Mark Rutte, said, it doesn't make sense to criticize Hungary at every single European council. Uh, so it seems like they didn't want to make it into that fight. Maybe that's something that works in Orban's favor, they figure. And so they're not going to they're not going to do that. And in the end, they did get an agreement. Because in the past on those democratic blacksliding issues which you refer to, Orban has has been able to rely at least to some extent on support or allyship from, for example, the law and order ruling party in Poland. But obviously Poland is very much on the other side of the um, of the debate on this particular issue, isn't it? Yeah, the Ukraine war has a, had a really interesting effect on the whole Visegrad group, the alliance of various um, Eastern and Central European member states. Poland and Hungary were allies for a very long time. And there's a complete fissure now in that relationship because Hungary is viewed as sitting on the fence in Poland regarding the war. It's not as hardline. Um, if you listen to Hungarian domestic media, it's riven through with Russian talking points. So the sort of pro-Orban media is quite sympathetic to the lines that are taken by the Putin regime. 
Um, and also, you know, it's been Orban who's taken stances like not allowing weapons to tra transit through his country, for example, on their way to Russia and other sort of measures like that. So this has gone down very, very badly in Poland, for whom, you know, this is an existential issue and they want the toughest European approach as possible. And this has had an interesting impact in that I think the rest of the EU member states and the European Commission have seen this as an opportunity perhaps to divide off Poland uh, from Hungary, to, to break that alliance. Because if it's just one member state, it's much less threatening than two. So we expect today, perhaps by the time this has gone out, the European Commission will have announced it's releasing um, Poland's recovery funds, its COVID-19 funds, which were also held up because of rule of law concerns. And so they're trying to get Poland back on side, back on a pro-EU track and isolate Hungary as the biggest sort of outlier. But Pat, I mean, this stuff is the daily grind for Naomi, but for you, you drop in from time to time on sort of uh, weekend breaks, I suppose, when these summits are happening and you kind of dip into this this world and maybe you, you kind of get a sense, you take the temperature from time to time. When you're talking to your journalistic colleagues or politicians when you were at the summit, what's your sense of the EU at this particular quite fraught moment? I mean, the thing that struck me about it, Hugh, now this wasn't my first summit back uh, after the COVID break. I was at the one uh, at the end of March as well. But just taking those uh, two together, and of course, this one was devoted to it was a special uh, summit and it was devoted to discussion of the fallout from uh, the war and related issues. But what strikes me is how dramatically changed the mood in the EU is because of the war, Naomi has referred to some aspects of that there. But, you know, the days when we used to go over and talk interminably about uh, about Brexit are definitively gone. No one is interested in Brexit. All they're interested in is the war and the implications of the war for the EU. And obviously they're playing out in lots of different ways. There is a new imperative and Emmanuel Macron has spoken uh, about this quite a lot for Europe to be, you know, to have what he calls strategic autonomy uh, in uh, in the future. There's the, the the way in which the Eastern and Central European countries now perceive a very direct military threat from Russia. And of course, that is overshadowing everything they do and is overshadowing their politics and their contributions to uh, pan-European and EU politics uh, entirely. If you're afraid of an invasion uh, from a neighbouring superpower, of course, I suppose it concentrates the mind um, wonderfully. And so the dynamics of how EU power politics work and the whole network, patchwork of alliances that existed at the council, as Naomi referenced, say, between Poland and Hungary on a variety of, uh, of issues where they felt a coincidence of, uh, of interest. All that has been thrown up in the air and, and changed. And I thought with the approach of Viktor Orban, I mean, there was, you know, he was, as Naomi says, talking about, you know, going in to do battle with the commission. That's part of his domestic political stake as well as his approach when he goes to Brussels. But even Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, was, you know, not sounding very optimistic about the prospects of a deal beforehand. And there was a very real prospect. I think that agreement would not be reached uh, on Monday night. But having got his carve-outs, it seemed to me that Orban 
took account of this changed mood and this sense that in the EU that it cannot simply flounder about failing to reach positions, that it has to come to positions. It has to take action on measures like like the new sanctions because not reaching an agreement would be such a, a statement of uh, of weakness. So it seems to me that having got the minimum of what he wanted, he then let the agreement go through. And I thought it was interesting, you know, before the, the summit, there was some suggestion from the commission side of things that, you know, well, if Orban blocked the uh, the next round of sanctions, which of course require unanimity on the European Council, then it would be op- open uh, to the Commission to propose increasing tariffs on Russian oil, which wouldn't require unanimity, but could could be uh, could be approved through. Uh, through majority voting because it would be a trade, uh, because it would be a trade matter. So, um, you, you know, overall, I found the mood uh, quite glum, you know, the sense that the war is going to go on for a long time. There's the worries about the uh, the looming food crisis, you know, EU leaders talking very specifically about the threat of famine in uh, in, in Africa and across the Middle East. And of course, the leaders are painfully aware, as we saw in the comments by Michal Martin, of the implications of the war and the sanctions for increased cost of living, which they must all deal with in their own, uh, you know, in in their own countries and in their own uh, capitals, in their own parliaments. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, the EU is, you know, I suppose it sounds slightly tried to say it, but it is... A, a changed world in the uh, in 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 the wake, and I think that the wake of the the invasion, and that was really very clear in the last couple of days in Brussels. And yet, Naomi, we should um, we should note that there is still a huge flow of fuel going east to west from Russia to the countries of the European Union, mostly in the form of of gas, and vast sums of revenue still pouring from the European Union into Russia, and that's going to continue. Yeah, unfortunately, infrastructure and energy systems are quite difficult to turn around. The entire economy of not just the EU, but like the wider Western world has been built on these fossil fuels. That's what heats people's homes and so on and drives the factories. And so it means that the exporter, Russia, has leverage there. It's it's all changing incredibly rapidly, though. It's interesting to see how quickly things can change. I mean, certainly there's more impetus to suddenly make radical decisions for this war than there has been for climate change, um, even though the potential risks of that are, you know, extremely significant. Today, we expect more EU countries to be cut off from the Russian side in terms of gas, the Netherlands and Denmark. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing this unpicking of decades of energy policy at like relative lightning speed. Um, This is, it is reducing revenue to Russia. It's also causing economic blowback in the EU, obviously, because it's uh, contributing to inflation, high energy prices, disruption, and it's going to have to be really carefully managed. There are some concerns, you know, there could be shortages and things like that. It depends on how effectively the EU is able to do a couple of things to get alternative supplies, um, which will cost a little bit more because they're not the first choice. 
Um, so getting them from other uh, other suppliers around the world by ship, liquefied natural natural gas and so on, how quickly they can increase uh, renewables, whether they can go through with these plans to increase the connections between EU member states so that electricity and energy resources can be better shared if one state has extra and the other one needs more and so on. Um, and um, inter- introduction of efficiencies and so on. So it's it in a way, it aligns with the policy that was already in place in terms of um, making energy systems more efficient and trying to shift to renewables. Um, but I think that the some of the solutions will not be pretty because of the rush to sort this out before the winter when it will get colder and there will be greater energy requirements for gas and oil and things like that. We're going to see more use of things like fracked gas, resumption of drilling in some cases. Uh, I think the Netherlands, for example, will look to exploit its gas fields that it thought it could lay um, basically not unexploited. We'll see more uh, deals with other regimes which aren't too palatable around the world. Um, so this this will require some um, yeah some dirty deals, I think, <laughs> if you could put it that way. But it's um, it's a scramble to basically try to keep European publics on board and try to keep their patience with this war. Um, with the concern being that public opinion may not have the patience for the effects on consumer prices and so on that will result from this and that a commitment to supporting Ukraine may waver. That's the, that's the concern anyway. Because uh, Vladimir Putin's gamble at the start of this war backfired spectacularly in that he didn't anticipate the level of united opposition which he received from from the West, from, from the EU and from, from, from NATO as well. But just as he has recalibrated his strategic objectives uh, on the ground in the war itself in Ukraine, he can still wait. He can still, his, his, his scepticism or cynicism about the ability of Europe to hold together might still prove to be, um, prove to be justified in, in the cold months of next winter, particularly if countries are being pushed into recession by, and, and inflation and various other unpleasant impacts, both on businesses and individuals. Mm-hmm. And Vladimir Putin doesn't need to worry about opinion polls, right? So, I mean, the economic effects on Russia are going to be severe, um, but he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't need to worry about you know losing midterm elections or whatever it might ha- it might happen to be. Um, he that's uh, something that he can will try to to fuel is public discontent um, in the EU, um, and we've seen a lot of attempts by that with the sort of Russian narrative being pushed that. It's not the war, it's not the invasion that caused this economic disruption, it's rather the Western sanctions, which is currently the sort of narrative that's being pushed. And the Russia has also made th- th- this uh, demand for sanctions to be dropped um, in order for the grain exports to be released, which is extremely serious. I mean, the situation is that over 20 million tonnes of grain are currently blocked blocked in Odessa port in Ukraine. Um, and we are already, you know, we're getting very concerning warnings of the effect that that is going to have on the more vulnerable countries that rely on that grain uh, as staple foods. Um, concerns about, you know, the risk of hunger. Macky Sall, who's the president of the African Union he and the president of um, of Senegal, he addressed the European Council and said that, you know, there's tens of millions of people in Africa that are already at risk of hunger and malnutrition. 
and you know prices have jumped the price of fertilizer has increased by three times since last year he said and you know, this this is extremely concerning and there needs to be some sort of deal to get that grain out so there has been a, quite a lot of focus on that um with attempts to negotiate with russia some sort of passage for grain shipments through the black sea but there's not that much optimism that that's going to be possible. So in the absence of that, the EU is trying to build up land routes out of Ukraine. So moving the grain, the grain over land by one means or another to try and increase those grain supplies and get more onto the global market. Um, but it's, it, it's clear that the international implications for the global economy of this war are perhaps only just starting to be felt. Yeah, that's true, isn't it, Pat? And I mean, looking at the uh, the lead story in this morning's Irish Times, which you co-wrote with Naomi, it focuses very much on what Miel Martin had to say about the the challenge of inflation here and and across Europe and the the political responses to that. We're in a situation which most governments haven't seen for more than a generation. I think it's fair to say, um, and there seems to be a certain amount of. If not, not confusion, but uncertainty about the best way to deal with the challenge of inflation. Yeah, I mean, the, again, the Taoiseach was pretty downbeat uh, about that in his comments to us yesterday, both on his way into the summit in the morning and again when he did a brief press conference uh, afterwards, you know, saying that, you know, government had to be straight with people about uh, this, that their, you know, fuel prices were going to continue going up. Inflation, Eurostat reported yesterday is at over 8% across the Eurozone. There'll be more detailed Irish figures next week, but it estimated Irish inflation running at 8.2%. That's something that hasn't been seen in more than more than 20 years and certainly hasn't been seen for a, a, a sustained period for, for longer than that. And that, you know, has a very real effect on living standards of people, particularly people, you know, on low fixed incomes uh, who are already struggling to make ends meet. And they're seeing, you know, the cost of food go up by over 7%. You know, they're seeing, you know, the cost of heating their homes go up by 40% uh, in in the past year. And that has a direct impact on people's lives. And, you know, all the, you know, all the leaders gathered around the conference table in uh, in the summit venue are all, you know, one way or another, democratically elected politicians who cannot afford to completely disregard, you know, sentiment of their voters uh, at home and nor will they. And, um, and, and that's the real difficulty that I think many of the European leaders foresee uh, over the coming months that, you know, as the war grinds on, as its economic effects continue to manifest themselves at, 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 at ground level, if you like, uh, in uh, in their societies, they are faced with a very difficult set of domestic political circumstances, and uh, I, you know I think that's aside altogether from the you know the sheer grimness of the picture of the war that 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 we're seeing and the loss of life and uh, and so forth and the knock on consequences which. You know, leaders were warned, maybe millions of people facing starvation uh, across Africa and uh, and the Middle East. The leaders know that they're facing very difficult political circumstances 
uh, at home. And I think that's just inevitable now. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Naomi, can I ask you about that from, from a European perspective? God knows I'm no economist, but I do more or less know that the classical way of dealing with the, the challenge of, of inflation in an economy, uh, or indeed in a single monetary space, which which we all occupy as part of the Eurozone, is to tighten money supply, uh, to raise interest rates, and that those sorts of measures in turn um, tend to have a downward depressing effect on economic growth and indeed can often tip countries into recession. Is there a discussion about those possible sort of actions and their consequences? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really difficult balance because on the one hand, I think if the EU leaders had the option, they would like to continue stimulus policies because a lot of the policies they want to pursue require a lot of investment. All of this uh, changing round of energy systems, um, green transition, uh, paying for defence, you know, paying for arms to replenish the stocks which are being depleted because of how many went to Ukraine and so on. And um, there's all of these disp- spending plans that have been announced. They need to fund that. So I think that they would, if they could continue to borrow and st- spend policies. But then at the same time, you have this inflation um, that's being driven from trends, not just in Europe, but o- over in the United States as well. Um, and um that means that what's expected is the European Central Bank will start incrementally raising interest rates from July. Um, and that will make it more expensive to borrow. It will make it more difficult to have debt and it will um, begin more to reward savers. So what we're expecting is for these sort of assets that got really inflated during the more um, stimulus happy times of COVID, where we got these asset bubbles in a number of different um, different areas, um, and we're expecting those to probably deflate, and then um, it will be it will be more expensive to to borrow. So that will be more difficult, for example, to pay higher and higher prices for things like houses. That will affect different EU economies differently. Um, the European Commission did an assessment of this recently in a number of different member states, and it was interesting to read, you know, how our, the forecast for Ireland differed from other um, other countries. In Ireland, the 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 borrowing limits have been strict enough and the demand versus the shortage of supply is tight enough that they don't think that Ireland is facing a correction in housing prices, even though housing prices are, are really high and difficult for people. Whereas some other member states are at are vulnerable of housing shocks because their market is more based on sort of cheaper availability of um, mortgages and people have been able to borrow much more compared to their salaries and incomes. So that that is a risk in in some countries. Um but it's I think the overriding theme of the economy is unpredictability. Um it very much depends on the outcome of the war or you know the course of the war and nobody has predicted many of the things that have happened so far. Uh, so it's 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 uncertainty is the overriding sort of feeling. Yeah, I mean I've in the in the last few days alone I've read about three entirely different predictions from pretty 
you know, respectable sources about the way in which the military conflict might play out over the next, over the rest of the summer and 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 into the autumn. So absolutely, um, as you say, who knows? But then this unpredictability is what people don't like, isn't it, in politics and in economics, Pat? You know, uh, so from the point of view of, of the Irish government, it's just a question of hold on tight. Yeah, and also, you know, that sort of volatility or unpredictability tends to dampen investment, which of course has its its own effect on uh, on economic growth. Ireland is, name is Great Ireland, like better placed in terms of you know sustaining uh, e- economic growth than many of the uh, many of the other EU member states. At the same time, we are. Uh, both publicly and privately highly indebted. So once interest rates begin to go up, that further clobbers the disposable income of, you know, the half of the country that have tracker mortgages and in many cases tracker mortgages on high capital sums. So a small increase in interest rates will hit their uh, monthly disposable income. But also when it comes to the public finances, um you know, higher uh, higher borrowing costs mean that the government has less, it's got to pay more of its resources in uh, debt repayments and is, uh, and, and is therefore has less money when it comes to giving away money in the budget, which is everybody's, you know, is still everybody's expectation. I mean, Taoiseach yesterday trying to hold the line against calls for, and we, we see those in the doll this week, again, for further, you know, cash giveaways to uh, to people to help them deal with, with rising costs. Taoiseach saying, no, there's not going to be any further package until the budget. But there's a very strong expectation that the budget will, you know, give away, you know, We'll see the figures, uh, I guess, when the summer, uh, the summer statement comes out. But the expectation would be, you know, in the region of three to four billion euros would be uh, would be given away in uh, in the budget. And I just think, you know, those numbers are going to get very, very tight for the government. That uh, you know, once it gets into the autumn, when it's looking at public pay demands, when it's looking at demands for you know for welfare payments to keep pace with uh, inflation you know for years inflation was negligible now it's as we said earlier running at uh, 8% and 8% increase in your welfare bill is would be very very uh, would be very very significant you know so you know I, I i think that economically fiscally you're looking at quite a difficult autumn and a difficult budgetary round, which is always one of the, you know, the big things that a government does in the course of the year. And they tend to be even more difficult for coalition governments to agree because it's got that many stakeholders that have to be appeased. And at some point at the European level, Naomi, does the old division with which we're very familiar re-emerge, the sort of the, the north-south division between the Germany and the northern countries and the and the Mediterranean countries are kind of generalizing there, obviously, but over fiscal policy, over state expenditure, over those kinds of issues. Is that kind of bubbling under or is that has that been reshaped by more recent events? Yeah, the war has created uh, different alliances. So the fiscal rules are suspended at the moment. The borrow and spend rules, which uh, limit how much you're supposed to run a deficit each year and so on in the EU, those were suspended under COVID. They had been expected to be reintroduced, but instead, because of the war, that's been extended. So those rules aren't in place currently, although the European Commission is still advising like 
don't go crazy, guys, you know, <laughs> kind of trying to keep a lid on it. Uh, but anyway, they're not in place. So there was due to be a big sort of showdown powwow about should these rules be re- renegotiated? Should they return in their current form or should they be changed? And could would it be possible to exempt certain kinds of investment on things like the energy transition uh, in so that, you know, you're not prevented from making investments that are important for society. Um, so that whole debate has been delayed and their fiscal rules just continue to be suspended for now. Um, there are, of course, there's different dynamics. There's different coalitions of, of member states on different issues. And what we've seen is a real emergence of the Baltics, Poland as being very strong voices um, in driving the conversation on this war, uh, largely because they've been vindicated in prior positions where they were more skeptical about Russia and uh, you know they've kind of been proven right. They weren't really listened to. Um, and now there's a lot of respect for their views, for their analysis, um, and also for the, like as you pointed out, the existential stake that they have in this question because they border Russia and have had experience of you know incursions and invasions and so on in the past um, from Moscow. So they have this um, overriding interest in in Ukraine winning because they they need the lesson of this to be that you can't take parts of of sovereign territory that isn't your own. That's what they need the lesson of this war to be, uh, you know, for the interests of their own long-term survival. That's how they see it. I mean, I suppose that we should say, Pat, that, I mean, we've framed this very much in discussion of reaction to events caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's not the only thing that's causing um, economic and inflationary pressures at the moment. Like, if you look at the complete disaster that happened at Dublin Airport last weekend, and who knows, might happen again um, next weekend, that's a sort of example of the the pressures and the strains caused by an economy emerging from shutdown and the pandemic and not being geared up to gear up quickly enough, I, I, I suppose, in terms of uh, labour shortages and systems and not being not being not being able to cope with the with the volume of traffic. And you can kind of see that in other kinds of services and goods as well, that those kinds of things are also driving inflation, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget that inflation and the cost of living was already a very significant political issue and was expected to be perhaps the political issue that would dominate this year, even before the invasion of uh, of Ukraine. You know, um, I I don't know if your memory extends back this far, Hugh, but at the start of the year, when we were looking forward to the uh, to the year ahead, we were talking about the cost of living as something that was you know going to be on the government's agenda week in week out. And as I say, that was even before. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine. There's no doubt that the invasion of Ukraine and the effect that it's had particularly on energy prices has completely turbocharged it. And as it also, uh, it appears will continue to t- turbocharge it for the, uh, for the foreseeable future. But, um, but yeah, like, you know, Ireland particularly to a lesser extent, other European governments were dealing with these problems of adjustment as their economies came out of uh, the long shutdown of COVID and people began to utilise their savings. And exactly right, you know, we see that in the pinch point of Dublin Airport, where I uh, spent several hours in uh, uh, on, on on Monday morning waiting to get through uh, waiting to get through security and, and and get on my flight to to Brussels. And I think you know we'll continue to see that. And in a way, you know, that's. These are the sort of problems 
that, you know, people notice rather than the, you know, the global strategy and the geopolitics of the, the, the war in Ukraine, you know, you know, often people, you know, boil their dissatisfaction with the government down to things like why they can't even, you know, fix the queues in the uh, in the airport. And, you know, uh, of course, it's all a bit more complicated than that. And how many levers that the government has to actually fix the queues in Dublin airport is uh, is is another matter, which is why government keeps saying it's nothing to do with us. We keep telling the Dublin Airport Authority uh, 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 about it. So uh, but, you know, that is, you know, that's a very real political issue for uh, for the government despite the fact that it, it it you know it doesn't have direct control operationally over Dublin airport that doesn't mean that government won't get the blame from those affected for its shortcomings and it is sort of related to this kind of thing of the return of rip off Ireland isn't it in the sense that everything is just rocketing up there's absurd prices for a basic hotel room or a bite to eat and things like that, which just add to the general sense of irritation about the place. Yeah, it's a sort of a there's a there's a grumpy mood afoot, and uh, you often find that you know in in when governments are in midterm. You know, I mean, if you think it was the same thing in the period, you know, that harking back to that rip off Ireland phase, which was you know, but the midterm of the. 2002-2007 government. Now, you know, we may recall that Bertie Hearn having, you know, thrown a whole heap of money at public and private sectors in the latter part of that government and promised to do more in the 2007 general election was re-elected with an, an enhanced mandate. But um, I think we're in a pretty different uh, situation now, though. Naomi, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted to point out because I can see how the Dublin airport thing is being woven into a particular domestic narrative in Ireland um, and that it's like a specific ill um, of Ireland. But you know, these queues have been happening in other European airports, just to point it out. Um, they actually started in the Netherlands first, in Schiphol. There was um, people queuing outside of the airport for like four hours with all their bags and stuff like that. And they were missing flights. This was going back about a month, I think, before it started in Ireland. And uh, they they started to rearrange flights to put them in other uh, national airports ar- around the Netherlands, and um, so it's it's not just there; it's also happening in the UK, Manchester, and so on. So whatever these structural issues are to do with staff having decreased during the pandemic, suddenly having to ac- increase the number of staff at a really quick rate, um, and then all w- at the same time everyone wanting to travel, um, w- you know, whatever these factors are, these impulses, they're happening in more than one country at the same time. Yeah, that's entirely true. I'm no fan of Irish exceptionalism, Naomi, and I have seen some horrendous reports from from Schiphol, I think, in in particular in Amsterdam. Interesting to hear that they're able to relocate some of their flights to other regional airports. That doesn't seem to be on the um, on the agenda here. So those sorts of related questions, can I ask you, maybe this will be a last question to you, to you Naomi, the kinds of things that, that we're experiencing here in Ireland, um, you know, turbocharged rises in hotel rooms and eating out and kind of sort of the nice things of life that people are able to do now that they weren't able to do for a couple of years. Do you see the same sort of thing where you are? I mean, there is something about it that makes it more intense in Ireland for sure. For whatever reason, is it 
it being an island or something like that, uh, prices in Ireland seem to be much more volatile and to like react in terms of inflation quicker, or maybe it's because it's it's a smaller market or there's there's less competition or something like that. Certainly the inflation is very, very much being felt. And it, what was interesting to me is that the energy price inflation began to be really, really serious politically in domestic politics for Spain, let's say, way back in the autumn. So actually before the before the war broke out, that was when energy prices really started to rise. Um, and then and at that point, it was already this sort of like crunch political issue because it, in Spain, they have much, much more precarious households uh, just because of the general economy of the country. Um, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of many a lot of poor people um so it began to be this um this massive domestic political issue for them um and then you you do see price rises of course elsewhere um but it, it does it is different from country to country and there's something about the i don't know what it is but the those pressure points of car rental and hotels and so on in Ireland do seem to be particularly dramatic, the rises. So maybe there is a bit of Irish exceptionalism there after all on, on, on those issues. We will leave it there for today. Anyway, thanks very much to Naomi and Pat for joining us. Our producer is Declan Conan. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon. You can contact us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Talk to you then.